Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Mountains. Mountains have a way of dominating the landscape. If you've ever driven west into Colorado, you know what I mean. Uh, You go through Nebraska, maybe you take the southern route, you come through Kansas, and and it's just flat, right? Mile after mile after mile of of prairie. Uh, But then at some point, off on the horizon, you see what what looks like clouds. At least that's what I thought it was the first time I saw it. I was like, that looks like clouds out there. What is that out there? But then as you drive a few more miles, you realize it's, that's not clouds, that's, that's mountains. Uh, in, in both directions, as far as I can see, it's just mountains everywhere. And as the closer you get, uh, the deeper you get into Colorado, the, the more it beca- those, those mountains, the Rocky Mountains, dominate the landscape. Uh, it's not just mountain ranges, though. Obviously, a mountain range will dominate, but, but sometimes individual mountains, individual peaks, uh, sometimes they're, they're so majestic and, and they're, they become so famous because of that that we even know them by name. Mount Everest. Mount Rainier, Mount St. Helens, Mount Vesuvius, Mount Fuji, Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, Probably everyone in the room has at least heard of those mountains. Many of us could find them on a map. Some of you have probably even been to some of those places. Uh, That's the thing about majestic and and important mountains. They have a way of of dominating the landscape and and looming large in, in our minds. Well, I begin with mountains this morning because there are two mountains in the text we're looking at today that dominate the landscape of scripture. Two mountains that dominate the landscape. Uh, Last week, we we talked about the race of faith. If you were here last week, we looked at that first part of Hebrews 12. We talked about uh, the race of faith in which every believer runs. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are running the race of faith with Jesus, and we need to run that race, we said, with endurance. It takes endurance to run this race, and so we talked about what it takes to to run the race of faith with endurance. Uh, The second half of the chapter kind of continues with this same theme. There's threads of endurance that keep running through this, except now these two mountains come into the picture, and the author brings these two mountains in, and they're actually in the middle of the... We're looking at the bigger section. We're going to look at 12 through 29 this morning, but I want to start with the middle part, the part I asked Brian to read, verses 18 through 24, because that's where these two mountains are, are found. And the first thing we need to know about these mountains... Let me put my little slide up here. The first thing we need to know about these mountains is that they are symbolic. So they're also real. Both of these are real places. You can find them on a map. You can visit them. They are real physical places. But Hebrews is using them symbolically. And specifically, each mountain stands for one of the covenants, one of these covenants that we've talked so much about in in the book of Hebrews, the old covenant and the new covenant. And so I will say there's a lot of summarizing going on, especially in this middle part that I'm going to start with. There's a lot of summarizing going on. The author is reviewing for us some of these things we learned, especially back in chapters 7 through 10. And he's using these two biblical mountains to to remind us of some of these things. So I wanted to start with these mountains, and then we'll go back and catch some some practical stuff that builds around the mountains. Uh, The first thing, uh, so so let's just look at the two mountains. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. That's the first mountain that he's talking about, and that's the one that we read about in verses 18 through 21. So so let me read those verses again, just so they're real fresh in our minds. So for 18, he says, for you have not come to what may be 
touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, even Moses is the idea, even Moses said, I tremble with fear. So those verses are talking about Mount Sinai, and it never says it's Mount Sinai. In fact, it doesn't even say it's Mount, it's a mountain. Uh, if that becomes clear with the next section, that, that the contrast is there. But that's what he's talking about, Mount Sinai from the Old Testament. Mount Sinai was a physical mountain, and, and he actually, he flags that for us in verse 18. It's a mountain that may be touched. Uh, you as a Christian have not come to the mountain that may be touched, more on that in a minute, but it's a mountain that may be touched. And so he's cluing us in. We're talking about the physical location where God gave the law to Moses and to the Israelites uh, in, in the book of Exodus. And I thought of reading Exodus 19. I won't for time's sake, but, but you could go read Exodus 19. I think the imagery, and, and it's not just imagery, what happened in Exodus 19 is what he's thinking about when he writes this. And so God gives the Ten Commandments. He gives the law to, uh, to the Israelites there at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai stands for something. And what it stands for is the Old Covenant, right? And so it's the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant was a covenant of works, right? This is the review part. It's a covenant of works. Why? Because that's what you had to do. You had to work. To make the Old Covenant work, you had to work. Uh, if you wanted to get right with God, if you wanted to please Him, you had to, you had to obey. You had to keep the law. You had to perfectly obey all the commandments that God gave at Mount Sinai. And what, there was a provision for sin when you sinned. There were the sacrifices. But, but you had to completely implement that whole system. And so it was a covenant of works. The results of the covenant were bad. And I think you see that in verses 18 through 21. God's law is good. We emphasize that a lot back in the middle of the book. There's nothing wrong with, God, with the old covenant. When we talk about the deficit of the old covenant, we're not talking about a deficit with God. We're talking about a deficit with us, right? That was, that was a lot of that was in chapter eight. Problem with the old covenant was human beings, human beings who could not and would not obey the law of God. And so what's the result of the old covenant? And this is really like, the, here's what the Old Testament shows. The result of the old covenant, the fruit it bore was fear and separation and judgment. And that's the picture that's painted for us there in verses 18 through 21. And you just look at that imagery again uh, that, he, that he describes there. Fear, it's trembling. Even Moses, the man of God, trembles at the thought of the mountain. And so you have, and I summarized verses 18 through 21 with these three words, fear, separation, judgment. That's the fruit of the old covenant. That's what you get at Mount Sinai. The second mountain in our text is Mount Zion, he calls it, Mount Zion. And that's the one we read about in the, in the contrast verses, 22, 23, 24. Let's hear him again. Verse 22, he says, but you have come, so you've not come to Mount Sinai, verse 18, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable, so now he's going to just tell us things that are going on there <laughs> in the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, his blood that speaks a better word than the accusing blood is the idea, the accusing blood of, of Abel. That's verses 22 through 24. That's Mount Zion. Now, the key here is that all of this, the stuff about the mountains, it's all written to believers. So when he says you, he's talking to you. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he's talking to you. You have not come to the Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. You have not come to the old covenant. You've come to the new covenant is, is the idea. Um, Mount Zion uh, is 
a, a physical location. It's, it's in Jerusalem. Uh, you, you could go there and visit, visit it. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's actually in the easternmost part of ancient Jerusalem. I will tell you, it's not that impressive. Uh, it's, it's really more of a hill, actually. If you, if you go there, it's really more of a hill. But symbolically and biblically, Mount Zion is, is huge. It dominates the landscape, as I say. Uh, why? Well, it all starts with, uh, the first. I think it's the first time it's called this, is uh, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5. And it's what David captures. So when David captures what comes to, it's called Jebus, when it comes to be, uh, he changes the name to Jerusalem, it is what he actually captures captures is Mount Zion, which is why it's, there's so much singing about it and talking about it, because it, it ends up being like the highest point or the most strategic point in the city of Jerusalem. So David captures Mount Zion and makes Jerusalem the capital of the, of the Jewish people ever since, right? By right, since, since uh, all 1000 uh, BC, we'll call it. So Mount Zion geographically represents the heart of the city of Jerusalem and therefore the heart of the Jewish people. But the, the important thing, the really important thing for our purposes here in Hebrews about Mount Zion is what it represents. And what it represents is the new covenant. It represents the new covenant. And you see this in scripture. If you follow the progression of scripture, and we talk about progressive revelation where, you know, the Old Testament is written over, over centuries. And so as God unfolds his revelation, especially in Psalms and in the prophets, Mount Zion, it becomes increasingly clear that, that Mount Zion, it's not only a physical location, it also stands for something. And what it stands for are the new things, specifically the new thing that God was going to do through the ultimate Davidic king. So you got David, Mount Zion, right? David takes Mount Zion for, for the people, and now Mount Zion becomes um, uh, symbolic and stands for what the ultimate Davidic king, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to do through it. And so Mount Zion comes to stand in scripture. Uh, you see it like there's a passage in Haggai chapter two, for example, you could go read. It, be, it becomes uh, clear that it stands for this new covenant that God is going to make with his people. And then you've got a passage like this one, which just comes right out and says as much. And so uh, Mount Zion represents the new covenant. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. It depends on what Jesus did for us, not on what we do for him. And so we're not saved by works. We're saved by his grace as we put our faith in him. Uh, and the results of it, just, just lay those two passages alongside each other. Uh, the results of it are all good. Right? So you've got gloom and terror and fear and judgment and separation. Don't even touch the mountain. Don't even let your dog touch the mountain. Uh, you've got that on Mount Sinai. And then over here, you've got all this good stuff. You've got angels celebrating and people celebrating and, and forgiveness and righteousness. God's righteousness is assigned to us and we're brought into communion with God. We have God himself. All these things that are described in verses 22 through 24. And so if you're trusting in Jesus rather than in your own good works, that is what dominates the landscape of your life. That, that's the point of this middle section. Uh, you are headed for the new Jerusalem, that heavenly city. You just look at how he describes it. The heavenly city where countless angels celebrate, where your sins are forgiven, uh, where your soul is made righteous, and where Jesus, again, these are all themes from earlier in the book, Jesus has brought us to the Father. We have access to the Father now. That's Mount Zion. That's what that stands for. And so we have these two mountains here, and, and you see how the author has kind of used them. He's pulled all these, he's taken two biblical mountains and used them to pull all these threads together for us. Mount Sinai is the old covenant of works. That's not us. But Mount Zion, Mount Zion is the new covenant of grace. That's the one that dominates 
our lives. That's, that's the one that dominates our landscape. The rest of the passage, so I want to cover the rest of the passage now. The rest of, of this morning's text is very practical because what it does is it focuses on what we need to do with that, right? So I start with those mountains because I want those to be in our brains, but so, so we've come to that better mountain, so okay, what now? <laughs> what, what, what does that do for my life? What is that, how does that change anything? So what, what am I supposed to do with the fact that I have come to the better mountain, that I have come to Mount, Z- Mount Zion? What, what does that, how does that matter? Well, with that, to, to answer that question, I, I want to kind of keep going with the, uh, the metaphor here. I want to talk about six rules for climbing, right? So here's a mountain. Well, what do you do with the mountain? You climb it. Why'd you climb the mountain? Because it's there. You know, I mean, you, you climb mountains. That's what you do. And so there's, there's this Mount Zion, which dominates our lives as new covenant people. And, and he, he tells us, here's what you do with that. So we've got, last week, we had five tips for running with endurance. This morning, we have uh, six rules for climbing. Six rules for climbing the, the new covenant mountain. And I won't push the metaphor too far, but, but this, these are six things we need to do as new covenant people that he lays out for us here. So, so let's, let's look through these. I'll show you what I mean. Rule number one for climbing the better mountain, for being new covenant people, is to push through your weariness. You push through. That, that's one of the things that comes out of this. You see what I mean? It gets real practical real quick. Uh, you push through your weariness. You don't give in to it. There's your endurance. So back to verse 12. So we'll, we'll work our way through now. Verse 12, I'm going to read 12 and 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather will be healed. So he's actually, he, he's still going with the running imagery. He's going to drop it in a minute here. But it's, this is more running imagery carrying over from last week's passage. And, and again, if you've ever had any experience as a coach or as an athlete, you've, you've said or heard this, right? I, I can't remember how many times our, you know, I must have had bad form because our coach was always telling us, arms up, get your arms up, right? If you move your arms, your legs will follow, right? When your legs start to feel bad, move your arms and, and your legs will follow. And, and the, our author saying the same sort of a thing in a spiritual way, he's saying, move your arms, strengthen your knees, get, your, get those legs strong, stay on the path, he says. What's he saying? He's really, he's saying, be strong and run straight. Be strong and run straight. Don't go zigzagging all over the place, right? You're in a race. Don't go zigging and zagging and which way and that. Run, run, be strong as you're running and, and run straight. He's influenced here. There's actually all kinds of Old Testament influences on this. Again, no surprise, it's Hebrews. Uh, he's, he seems to have a proverb in mind. He doesn't quote it directly, which is why Bible, most Bibles don't set it apart like a quote. But what he says here in 12 and 13 sounds an awful lot like Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27. Let me just read it. Here are the echoes. He says, let your, so this is from Proverbs 4. Solomon says, let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. That's Old Testament wisdom. It's good wisdom for life. The New Testament version of that is put your eyes on Jesus and, and don't give up. Don't give up. So you see, it's echoes from the stuff from last week. Don't give up just because life gets hard. Keep going. Push through that spiritual weariness and that physical weariness. Now, at this point, with this first rule, I could very easily see someone uh, raising an objection here, and the objection would go something like this. Uh, 
that's not helpful, (laughs) right? That's not helpful. That just sounds like God's telling me to try harder. And I will say that would be true. That would be true if we didn't start with the mountains. God would be telling us, you know, buck up, try harder, buddy, if we didn't have, especially verses 22 through 24. Remember, we didn't come to Mount Sinai. We came to Mount Zion. We've come to the new covenant. So when God says, Put your, get your arms moving and run, run, be strong and run straight, he's not telling us to do that with a, a law-based, rules-based, uh, works-based, old covenant mindset. He's telling us to do that, push through with a grace-based, faith in Jesus Christ, new covenant kind of a mindset. That's the context for this. Especially, what's the one key? That I'll, I'll, there's a lot of keys here, but the one I'd emphasize is the Holy Spirit himself. It's not, he doesn't talk about the Holy Spirit in this text, but he's the difference maker. God himself, he, he's not up on a mountain that we can't even approach and we've got to be terrified to go near anymore. Now God himself dwells within us in the third person of the Trinity. God himself, the Holy Spirit, lives within us. And so pushing through our weariness, that's not something we do alone. And, and this is the point where the, the running metaphor really does kind of break down because if, if you're running in a race, you're kind of in it on your own, right? I mean, people can cheer for you from the sidelines, but you've got to either win or lose that race on your own if you're, if you're a runner. But, but that's not true for us as Christians because this race, we have God himself abiding within us. The Holy Spirit empowers us, energizes us, motivates us, redirects us. When we want to zig, he, he pulls us back to the straight and narrow, as it were. And so that's, he's the difference maker. We have the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's working in us and through us to help us push through our weariness. But we do need to push through, and that's why it's here. So uh, by the grace of God and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, keep going. Keep going. Push through your weariness. Number two, the second rule for climbing the better mountain uh, is that we are to strive for wholeness. Strive for wholeness. That's what we get in verse 14. Because we belong to the new covenant, uh, God wants us to strive for, whole, for wholeness. Wholeness. And there's two parts to that. You'll see when I go through it in a second here. But it's verse 14. He says, Strive for peace with everyone. And strive, the verbal idea will repeat, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So the key verb in verse 14 is this word strive. Uh, the word, it's, it's an athlete, athlete's word. It means to run after something. Strive, pursue, chase it down is, is the idea. And, and there are two things we're told to chase down. There's two things we're supposed to go after according to verse 14. The first is peace. Peace with everyone. So it's not inner peace, it's relational peace. Peace with everyone. Uh, Strive for peace with everyone, he says. That is, pursue wholeness in uh, in your relationships. I think Paul puts it, I I love how Paul puts it in Romans 12. Uh, And so I'm going to borrow a verse from Romans to help shed light on this one. Romans 12, 18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Insofar as as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Uh, Strive for wholeness in your relationships. That's a big issue in our day. You know, a lot of people talk about um, the the absence or the decline of civility in our culture. Maybe you've heard people talk about that. They talk about it with politics, but it's not just politics, it's everywhere. 
Uh, sometimes even in the most unlikely places, you see this, this antagonism that dominates our culture. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, I have a, a subscription to a website that lets me look at the daily comics. Right? So I get an email, the email comes in overnight, we pay 20 bucks a year for this, best 20 bucks I spend probably a year. And uh, I get an email with like my 30 favorite comics, right? And so I've, I went through and whatever's in their library, I pick them out. So I get this email. And, and so uh, I, a lot of times I'll kind of look at it over breakfast or whatever. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was uh, one strip in particular that I just didn't understand, right? I kind of, I didn't get the joke, if I could put it like that. And so I thought, well, maybe, maybe some of the other comics readers are having the same problem. And so I, I clicked through to the actual website where this all is, and I started going through the comments section. And I'm just looking for someone who's going to say, yeah, the joke means X, you know, just kind of explain it to me. And I start reading through these comment sections, and I realized pretty quickly that, the, that several people were arguing with each other about the comic. And some of them were criticizing the cartoonist for how he approached it, and other, someone else was defending him and, and how he was making his joke. And I mean, at least they weren't swearing at each other, but they were arguing about a comic strip. I just thought, man, that's, that's just crazy. If you belong to Jesus, don't do that. <laughs> I, I think that's verse 14. It be, strive for peace with everybody. If you belong to Jesus, don't be that person. Be the one making peace. Right? Be the one making peace, not the one disturbing the peace. Strive for wholeness in your relationships, your, your closest relationships, you know, your marriage, your family, uh, your work relationships, your church work relationships, yes, even your online relationships. Strive for peace. The other thing, we're told to strive for two things. The other thing we're to strive for is holiness. And it's to strive, so strive for, like I said, the verbal idea repeats, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The word he, he uses here for holiness means right behavior. So we're not talking about um, like the righteousness of Christ that's assigned to us at justification when we put our faith in Jesus. This word actually is the sanctification word. And so it's, it's the behavior word. And so it's, it's how we act. It's what we do. It's how we think. It's what we say. It's what we watch. It's all that stuff that we would lump into the big category of, of behavior. And what he's saying there is, is that stuff matters. Yes, we've come to Mount Zion, but that doesn't mean the way we live suddenly doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. It matters a lot. And so we are to strive for, he says, holiness, strive for right behavior. Why? Because without it, we won't see the Lord, he says. Why does he say that? Well, what he means, I don't think he, we're not talking about losing salvation. We've, we've dealt with that issue earlier in the book. What he's talking about is just that fundamental sense of which sin separates, Sin, sin separates from God. We can be in union with the Lord, and that's never going to be broken. But if we're indulging in sin on a regular basis and not repenting of it, we, we do start to harm our communion with God, our, our relationship with Him. Uh, he's always going to welcome us back, but that's what he's saying. We're, if, we, if we aren't striving for holiness, then, then we're hurting our own, inner, our own relationship with the Lord. And so he says, strive, strive for holiness. Right? Deal, deal with your sin. We, the issue came up last week, too, in verses 1 and 2. Uh, deal, we need to deal with our sin in the new covenant way. Right? We're not going to sacrifice animals. That's not the way to do it. Instead, we, you know, we, the, the Holy Spirit convicts us. Remember, He lives within us. And what's the right response to the Holy Spirit's conviction? It's repentance. It's, it's confession and repentance. 
That's not something we do just once. That's a regular part of, of the Christian life. And so strive for holiness. Strive for holiness in behavior. And, and when we fall short, as we inevitably will, respond with, with repent, with confession, repentance, and, and uh, running, continuing to strive, continuing to run with him. That actually brings us into the next rule, because he's going to talk the same theme from a different angle. Uh, rule number three for climbing the better mountain is that we need to choose the long-term good. Choose the long-term good. Don't live for the moment. And we're talking morally now. Don't live for the moment. Live for eternity. That's the advice we get in verses 15, 16, and 17. So let me read that some, little bit longer section, starting with verse 15. He says, see to it, and I'm going to repeat that verb because, again, the verbal idea applies throughout. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So there's one main verb for this section, verses 15 through 17. The verb is see, or see to it, is how ESV translates it. Uh, the word means uh, to pay attention to something or be concerned about something. And there are three things uh, that he tells us to pay attention to in this little section. So pay attention to three things, he says. And, and I, I don't think they're three separate things. I'm going to take them as as grouped together. It's called parallelism. So, so the first thing to see to it, the first thing to pay attention to is grace. So he makes a general statement. Make sure nobody, I'll use the NIV here, nobody falls short. Right? And so there's also a sense in which we're helping each other even as we do it for ourselves. Make sure that nobody falls short of God's grace. That's the first see to it. The second one and the third one, I think, are both practical examples of what it would look like to fall from grace. So you say, what would it look like to fall from grace? It would be these two things. And when you look at the two examples he gives us, what they have in common is they both put short-term pleasure ahead of the long-term good. Both of them put short-term pleasure ahead of the long-term good. The first example he gives is bitterness. Bitterness. Pay attention. Make sure that no root of bitterness takes hold in your heart. And you can see the image, right? Once the root takes hold, the plant's going to grow. So don't let the root take hold. Right? Don't let any root of bitterness take hold in your heart. Bitterness feels good. It feels good in the short term. It feels good to nurse a grudge. Right? Over that awful thing that somebody said, there's a certain, and I know this from personal experience, right? there's a certain delicious satisfaction in replaying that hurt over and over again in the soundtrack of our minds. It, it can feel good. It also, it can feel kind of sour, but there's a sense in which it feels good or else we wouldn't do it. But in the long run, in the long run, it causes nothing but, what does the text say? Trouble and defilement. That's verse 15. In the long run, bitterness brings uh, trouble and it brings defilement. Bitterness is a stinking mess, he says. So, so don't do that one. That, you know, don't, don't fall short of grace by indulging in bitterness. Uh, instead, deal with it, right? It's a lot of the same things we talked about when dealing with our own personal sin. For, you know, can go and confess if you were the person who wronged, uh, forgive if you were the person who was wronged, uh, be reconciled in that relationship, and, and under grace, move on. You know, forgive as God in Christ has forgiven you. It's, it's that kind of a thing. 
So to, to give up bitterness, to, to root out any bitterness that's about to take hold in us, is to put the long-term good ahead of the short-term pleasure. The other example he gives us is, is more obvious, I guess. It's, it's sexual immorality. He says, pay attention, make sure that no one among you is sexually immoral or unholy. And the parallelism there, he's talking about sexual sin. Make sure no one among you is indulging in sexual immorality. Uh, again, uh, sexual sin feels good in the short term, right? It feels so good in the moment, but it's so costly in the long run. That, that's his point there in, in verses 15 through 17. And to prove that, he reminds us of uh, somebody he's actually already mentioned. It's someone he mentioned in the Hall of Faith back in chapter 11. He reminds us of this guy named Esau. Uh, Don't be like Esau, he says, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Uh, It's a short passage. I'm actually going to read it. It's in uh, Genesis. It's not the whole Esau, Isaac, Jacob story, but, but but the part where he sells his birthright is in Genesis 25, And I'm just going to read 29 through 34. Here's what our author is talking about. So remember, there was Isaac. You had Abraham. His son was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twins, but Esau was older. Esau was born first, so he's firstborn. He's got all the the rights and privileges of the firstborn instead of Jacob. So one time when Jacob was cooking stew, lentils, another translation says. I always picture a stew of lentils. Uh, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. That's why his name is Edom. Edom means red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die of what use is a birthright to me. Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, there's your lentils, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Esau made a huge mistake, right? And if, you, if you're at all familiar with the stories that goes on from there, he regrets it very soon after. Uh, he regrets it. It's huge. The mistake he makes is he trades his birthright. And what that means is that he gave away to his younger brother, he gave away his rights as the firstborn child of Isaac. And in that culture, that was huge. That was huge. He would become the leader of the family when Isaac died. Uh, Most of the wealth comes to him, and Isaac was a very wealthy man. Uh, And Esau gave that all away in exchange for lunch. He gave it away for lunch. Now, it's interesting. There is no hint of sexual sin in what Esau did. Right? There's, right? He didn't commit a sexual sin when, when he did that. So, so, and the author of Hebrews isn't saying he did. Right? It wasn't a sexual sin that Esau committed when he sold his birthright. Instead, he did some, the author is saying something much bigger. He's telling us that's what sexual sin is like. It's like what Esau did. What's it like? It's like giving away something supremely valuable in exchange for something that barely registers on the scale, right? You're the full rights of the firstborn in a highly patriarchal society versus a bowl of, a bowl of beans, a bowl of lentils. That's what he's saying. Some people, here's the point the author wants us to see, he's, and it's a warning, he's, some people do the same thing with sexual sin. They satisfy a very short-term appetite, and it feels good in the moment, right? Like the lentil stew was satisfying in the moment. But a few hours later, 
Maybe a couple of days later, they're hungry all over again. And on top of that, not only are they hungry again, now they have to live with the consequences from the action they made, which is what you see with Esau. And so, don't do that, the author says. If you're a Mount Zion person, if you've come to Jesus, don't live your life that way. Let's not live our life that way. Do not put short-term pleasures ahead of the long-term good. It never pays off in the end when we do. So that's rule number three. The fourth rule for climbing the better mountain is that we need to obey God's word. These all kind of build on each other, obey God's word. Uh, that's what we see on the, uh, on the other side of the mountains. So over to verse 25. So we, we get those first three, then we get the mountains, the comparison to the mountains. Now on verse 25, and uh, this is the longest, longest section. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read 25 through 27. He says, see, it's a different word, but a similar idea to the one we just looked at. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they, the people at Mount Sinai, who he's talking about, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, the created order, in order that the things that cannot be shaken, eternal life, may remain. So what he does there is he, he picks up on that voice from Mount Sinai, right? So verse 19 talks about a, a terrifying voice that spoke from the mountain. Whose voice? God's voice. Verse 25 grabs that, which he just talked about, and he says, make sure you don't refuse him. Yeah, you're a Mount Zion person, but you still got to listen to the voice from the mountain. That's, that's the point there. Uh, do not refuse the voice of the mountain. Do not refuse the Lord's word, or as I'm putting it in, in our outline this morning, obey. It's one of the key things for you and me as, as, as New Covenant people. Obey God's word. Uh, the main verb in that whole section I just read is this word see, and this word is, like I say, it's different than the other see we looked at a minute ago. Uh, this see means, it, it's, a, it's a warning word. It actually means watch out. Watch out. Beware. Uh, watch out for cars. You know, we'll train our kids. Watch out when you cross the street. Look both ways. You know, it's a warning word. That's the idea. And so that's what he's saying here. This is a warning, verses 25 through 27, that it's important for us to obey God's word. Um, if you've been here for a lot of this series, you've heard me say along the way in Hebrews that Hebrews is um, organized around a series of warnings. There are five major warnings in the book, and uh, we've looked at them as we've gone along the way. This is warning number five. Uh, it's the shortest of them, but it's, uh, but it, it's got a punch, right? It, it's, this is warning number five, because warning not, number five says, make sure you do what God says. Don't disobey God's word. Why? Because if we do, if we, if we disobey him, and, and, and again, we're not talking about the sin we commit, he's talking of, and, and then repent of, he's talking about a, a Christian um, making a mockery of the cross by continuing stubbornly, willfully, wickedly in sin. If you do that, he says, it's going to go badly. That's the sharp point of the warning here in 25 through 27. What does he mean? Well, he reminds us of the Israelites, right? They did not listen to the voice at the mountain, and they faced all kinds of trouble. That's the whole history of the, of, of the Old Testament. Just read through, you see all the trouble that they faced. Most immediately you get, I mean, in its most immediate context, you get the golden calf. They didn't do what the voice said, have no other gods. They said, oh, well, we'll just make another god. Uh, and it didn't go well for them. 
What's, his, what's he say to you and me, though? What's, what does God say? He says, they were only rejecting the old covenant. They were only rejecting the old covenant. If we reject the new covenant, right? Because if we reject the new covenant, we're, we're not rejecting Sinai, we're rejecting Jesus. And what's the, what's the big theme of the book? <laughs> Jesus is better. So if we reject the one who's even better, how much worse is it going to go for us? You see, there's the, the, the sharp, sharp end of the spear, as it were. That's the, the sharp part of the warning. How much worse will it be for us? And, and what he's talking about is, is God's judgment, right? So there's this, this soberness here about this part. And what kind of a judgment are we talking about? Well, there's lots of, there's time to repent. I won't say lots of time because I don't know, but, but there's time to repent because the when it comes is, is judgment, right? So that's what verse 27 is talking about. Very poetic language, lots of importing here from prophets, including, uh, I think it's that same Haggai passage I mentioned before. But his, his idea is that that judgment will come at the end. That's when the, the shaking will come. And so Mount Sinai shook. Here's, here's why that word shaking is used. It, Mount Sinai shook. If you read Exodus, the mountain shook when God spoke, and the author says, hey, listen, that was just a preview. There's a shaking coming that's not going to just shake a mountain or not just shake the earth. It's going to shake the heavens and the earth, it, and it, you, you'll get into Revelation stuff at that point, right? The, the real shaking is going to come when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So knowing that that's coming, knowing which mountain we came to, knowing that our God is a consuming fire, the last verse of the, of the chapter, knowing all that, what do we do? Obey God's word. We have come to Mount Zion. We belong to the new covenant of grace, covenant of grace. So let's live like it. Let's live like God's people by obeying his word. That's the, the fourth rule. That rule's pretty heavy, I know. Uh, that's why I was so glad for the last two, because the last two were more fun. Uh, the fifth rule for climbing the better mountain is to give thanks, right? And the author, the author senses the tension too, which is why he ends the chapter this way. He says, be grateful. Therefore, be grateful. The, the word therefore is, is there. He's going to say, here's your two big responses to what I just told you. The first is be grateful. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, all that shaking is happening for, for those who won't submit to the Lord, but that's not us. It's that same thing we talked about in chapter 6 and chapter 10. That's not us. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let's be grateful. Uh, we have, and what's he talking about? He's talking about, he's talking about Christ. He's talking about the new covenant. He's talking ultimately about eternal life. That's, that's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Uh, he's looking ahead to the hope we have in Jesus. How do we respond to that? gratitude. Be grateful. <laughs> Be thankful. Uh, and not just at Thanksgiving, right? How timely. Right? It's a week and a half away, but not just at Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, all year round, Christians especially should be a thankful, grateful people. And that's true for our material blessings, of course. We often talk about those this time of year, but it's the spiritual blessings too. And I do think it's, it's the spiritual blessings the author mostly has in mind in this text. There's lots of material blessings that scripture tells us to be thankful for. But here he's telling us, be thankful for those blessings of the new covenant, those blessings of Mount Zion, your salvation, your forgiveness, uh, the grace he's given us, right? We talk about falling short of grace. We've already overcome so much. You know, we talk about endurance. Um, you've already endured, right? Be grateful for what he's already brought you through, even as we keep running forward in the stuff that lies ahead. All these kinds of things. Uh, the sanctification, I don't know about you, I, I wish I was more godly than I am. But when I look back, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a better place than I was a year ago, or 10 years ago, 20 years ago. My wife could certainly tell you that. 
You know, so, so be grateful for that too. I think that's another thing here that we see where we can give thanks for all these, these things God's doing in our lives. Give thanks for it. And then the last one, you could probably fill this one in yourself, is, uh, is worship. Worship, that's rule number six. We need to respond to the Lord with worship. And it goes right with the gratitude one. In fact, they share uh, the, the syntax here, the, the grammar is, is together. Uh, he says, and uh, so I'll read them together. Therefore, let us be grateful receive, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So be thankful and worship. <laughs> Let us offer our worship to God, it says. And notice it's not just any worship, it's acceptable worship. That's an important word. And, and what the word means is pleasing. So it's not that there's like boxes that have to be ticked. It's more of an emotive word. Uh, it's pleasing. It's pleasing worship. Pleasing to whom? Uh, not ourselves, uh, but to him. It's pleasing to God. So offer worship that's pleasing to God, that's acceptable to him. What's that going to take? Well, Jesus tells us in John 4, it's worship that's offered in spirit and truth, right? It's not all rituals and, and religion. It's worship that is sincere. It's humble. It's from the heart. Uh, it's rooted in truth, right? We talk about being rooted in, in uh, we talk about worship in truth. Uh, it's it's, it's, it's uh, worship that is true, right? We sing true things and we worship the true God. Um, it's in spirit. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. A lot of that is coming from other passages. The one he emphasizes here in verse 28 and 29 is that reverence. Worship in spirit and truth, worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God is worship that is reverent. And, and you can have joyful reverent or you can have sober reverent, but it's, it's, it's reverent and in awe of him. Why? Because that's what he deserves. He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of our awe because we never, we never entirely leave Mount Sinai behind. He is a consuming fire. He is a holy God. He is powerful. He's just also loving and gracious and kind to us in our, in our frailty. So give thanks and worship because he deserves it. He deserves our, our worship. About four years ago, uh, some researchers at uh, Duke University, a little research team, uh, made an announcement. They, they announced that they had calculated the ultimate limit of human endurance. Uh, and uh, they were scientist types, and so they had to make it all formal. They, they reported it in terms of calories. And so they, I don't know who funds these things, but they, they did a bunch of research, and they figured out that how, you know, and they were really asking the question, how far can you push a human body before it can't go any far, farther? And, and they, realized, they, they calculated the ultimate limit is 4,000 calories a day. That, that's, that, that, that there's something about that 4,000 calories. And what they meant by that, it's, it, you can spend more than 4,000 calories in a day. I mean, marathon runners do it and so on. But you can only do that one day, two days, maybe three days. But much beyond that, the human body can't do it. That, that's what their research showed anyway. Don't ask me. I'm not a scientist. But, but that's, that's what their research showed. So even, even you know, the, 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 you know that whoever just won the, you know, the New York Marathon or whatever, maybe he could go run it again the next week, the next day, but he couldn't do it the third day. That even, even the greatest athletes reach a limit. And I, I, I saw that story and I was thinking, I wonder if any of you feel like that. Not, not physically, but spiritually. 
Now, we keep talking about how the big picture message of this book is to press on and to, to endure by faith. And, and, and I wonder if anybody here feels like you've reached the ultimate limit of your spiritual endurance or your emotional endurance or maybe even physical, not like an athlete, but just, you're just like, I don't want to get out of bed again today. If you do, if anybody's feeling that way today, I want to close with two words of encouragement. The first is that you're not alone. You are not alone. Most of us, probably all of us at some point or another, go through times like that. And my proof for that isn't just experience, it's the existence of the book of Hebrews. Right? We wouldn't need a book like Hebrews if we didn't need an encouragement to keep pressing on through hard times. Remember, that's what this book is all about. And so you're not alone. And, and it's, a lot of times when you feel that way, you're sure you're the only one on the planet who feels that way. You are not alone. The second thing I want to say is that the Lord of Mount Zion wants to help us. He wants to help. We have come to the better mountain, right? I know the imagery is, is, is rich, but what it boils down to, he's saying, you've come to Jesus. We've come to Jesus. We've come to the better mountain, and he will help us. In fact, he promised. He promised that he would help us. You see, you get it, you get it here. Remember, Hebrews has got a lot about promises in here, but I'll, I'll take you to the one you know even better, Matthew 11. Matthew 11 and 28, Jesus says, come to me. Right there it is. It's an invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So, so come to him. Come to Jesus. Live. I mean, it's, it's, it's the message of this chapter here in Hebrews. Come to Jesus. Live his way instead of man's way. Take his yoke upon you, Matthew eleven twenty nine. Right, His mountain's the better mountain. Come to Jesus and let Jesus give you the rest that your soul craves.